Hello and welcome to the Ticket Podcast with me, Noemi Di Stefano. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Pulse by Public.com, providing tools for IR teams to engage with retail shareholders. As we wrap up 2023 amidst its challenges and triumphs, for this final episode before the holiday season, we wanted to focus on the passion and inspiration driving careers in IR, perhaps setting the tone for a promising 2024. That's why we have decided to put together a few excerpts from our interviews with award winners at our award ceremonies across the globe. So hopefully you can get inspired by their stories, ideas and remarkable journeys that gained these IROs and also company executives and their firms an IR Magazine Award in 2023. So without further ado, let's get started. The first stop is the US, where this year's IR Magazine Awards ceremony took place in March. First up, we have the educational technology company Duolingo, which was recognized for its innovative efforts in shareholder communications. At the ceremony in New York, we spoke with Deborah Bilevan, vice president of IR at the firm, to find out more about the efforts that contributed to the company's success, of course, with a focus on their innovative efforts in their engagement with shareholders. And this is what Bilevin had to say. So I, I think uh, we, we had a couple of things that probably contributed to that um, recognition. Uh, one of the things is we, we shifted to a shareholder letter, a quarterly shareholder letter. So instead of the, uh, the investor uh, earnings call presentation, press release, script, kind of took all that information and put it into a shareholder letter. And so uh, we released that before the earnings call. So the investors and analysts can, can digest all that. And we have a much more productive earnings call where they have, you know, we focus more on Q&A. So that's been really well received. And um, the more fun um, change that I would rec- what I would highlight is um, going from an uh, a, a earnings call to a video, Zoom earnings call. Uh, yeah. So uh, our executives are on video. Um, sometimes a duo will make a cameo uh, or we'll play one of our TikTok videos. And so, um, and it's just a lot more engaging. You see the analysts who are ask- answering the qu- asking the questions. Um, you see the executives, um, you know, responses. And so it, those have both been really well received. And um, I think we just continue trying to make them better. And the Memphis headquartered firm First Horizon Bank, formerly known as First Tennessee Bank, picked up four prizes this year among awards dedicated to small to mid-cap firms. The firm won prizes as Best Overall IR, Best IR Officer, Best IR by Senior Management and Best in Sector for Financials. First Horizon CFO Hop Dumchowski spoke to IR Magazine about the firm's journey to success and offered some advice to IROs for the next financial year. Let's hear what she had to say. Our team has had a heck of a few years. We just completed a merger of equals in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, We completed our client conversion and the next week announced another merger that we were being acquired by TD Bank in a... uh, unprecedented, unexpected bid. We were not for sale and we got a 40% premium. So they have been busy telling our story uh, for years of a growing bank. My best advice is always be open and honest and available. No matter what's happening, what the cycle is, whether you have a good story or bad story to tell, be the one out there telling it. Don't let somebody else tell your story for you because you're not talking to them. And that was Hope Dumchowski speaking at the IR Magazine US Awards earlier this year. A reminder to our listeners that you can find out more about winners and one-to-one interviews on our website, irmagazine.com. Before we move to a few winners' highlights from other regions, I wanted to introduce our last clip from the US Awards. I really thought you would want to hear this, and I'm talking about an excerpt clip from Jane McCahon's speech. McCahon is a leading IR professional with three decades of experience who picked up the prestigious Lifetime Achievement Trophy this year. Upon collecting her award on stage, she addressed the audience and shared career advice. Let's hear it. 
And as I thought about what I could possibly say to this incredible group of professionals that are all so highly accomplished, there was one theme that came to mind, and it's pass it on. You know, guys, we have three things. We have time, we have talent, and we have treasure. And at any given moment in your life, you're going to have some, you know, more of some and less of some, but, but you need to think of where you are in your life and figure out that balance. So maybe you're at the heart of your career and you have all this incredible investor relations and capital markets talent, so pass it on to your colleagues, to your management, to your clients, to the investment community because that's not going to do anything but strengthen our capital markets for a long, long time in the future. You know? Incredible speech there. You can find the full video and the full speech, of course, on our website. And if you're looking for some inspiration from the best, I suggest you really give it a click. Um, on to Canada now and a four-time award-winning company. I'm talking about the Montreal headquartered management and consultancy service provider, WSP Global. Within the large cap awards, the company won Best Overall IR, Best IR by a Senior Management Team, Best IR in the Industrial Sector, and Best Investor Event for Large Cap. Quentin Weber, Director of IR at the firm, shared some top tips, noting three key points for IROs to prioritize ahead of an investor day. Yeah, I think the an investor event, an investor day is probably the most challenging event for any IRO. So I think number one key is really to is regarding logistics. So making making sure that you have a clear plan, a clear to-do list, clear expectations, a clear timeline. So I think that there's no way to go around it. Uh, second one is probably very aligned with with IR in general. So being proactive. So pretty much expecting uh, what could be happening on the investor day, what could be potential questions, answers, etc. So I mean. There's a lot that goes into an investor day, but really being proactive, being, being organized, and finally, I think, all around stress. So there's a significant amount of stress level for an investor day because your C-suite's involved, you're involved, many stakeholders. So I think being, being on the ball and being ready to, to adapt, I think that that's really crucial for a successful investor event. And that was Quentin Weber speaking in Toronto earlier in April at the IR Magazine Canada Awards ceremony. Let's move to this side of the Atlantic now uh, and look at some of the winners in Europe. First up is Unicredit, the Milan headquartered bank who saw its head of IR, Magda Palczynska, picking up the Best IR Officer Prize for Large Cup at the 2023 IR Magazine Europe Awards. Let's hear what Palczynska had to say about her efforts behind the firm's winning IR strategy. The last year, I think, has been extremely challenging for uh, the industry with all the macro changes. Clearly, with the breakout of the conflict, um, a lot of concerns about uh, the financial sector as well. So it's been about making sure our disclosure um, is staying relevant and fresh, uh, very topical, that we're speaking with investors very frequently, including with our management team, uh, and that uh, basically, you know, we're there to answer any questions and concerns and, and to demonstrate, um, because we have had a new CEO for the last two years, that our new strategy is delivering for the investors. And in July, we also had an in-depth conversation on the Ticket Podcast with Magda Palczynska. We spoke about how to manage investor sentiment two years into a new strategy, manage the impact of bad press coverage, and much more. Uh, to listen to that conversation, you can just search for the Ticket number 140 on our website uh, or whichever platform you are joining us from. That's the Ticket 140. We will now hear from David De La Rose Fernandez, director of IR at the online travel business eDreams. The firm picked up the best overall IR for small caps and the best IR officer also for small caps at the Europe Awards 2023. 
De La Rose Fernandez joined us earlier in June on the IR magazine Red Carpet in London during the awards ceremony and shared some advice with his peers on how to manage all the different pressures they may find themselves under. The one part that I mean they, we cannot control that is basically the delivery of the results of the company. I mean, I, I think as long as you get, let's say, the support from the senior management team to continue doing what you're doing and making sure that, I mean, you put lots of emphasis on trying to understand who are the, the right people that you should be meeting with and who are the right sales analysts you should be talking to because at the end of the day it's not about quantity, it's about quality. So you have to make sure that, I mean, who you meet on the investor side, who you spend time on the sales analyst side, is the right people that are going to communicate and is going to spread the word about the equity story. And if all of that comes together, I mean, I think we're in a good place. Time for a quick stop in Southeast Asia now. One of our most recent award ceremonies held this month in Singapore. We spoke with Elena Arabjeva, CEO and head of IR at Cromwell European REIT, as the firm celebrated dual victories for best annual report and best ESG reporting in the small cap segment. This is what Arab Jeva had to say, outlining the company's vision for 2024. I'm hoping 2024 is going to be a better year for real estate as compared to 2023. I guess the bar is very low. Uh, so I certainly hope for a better year, but as my boss constantly reminds me, hope is not a strategy. So we just need to keep on going, uh, communicate a strategy to the market, and at the same time deliver on performance and continue to be transparent. So this is what I'm planning to do. And that's it for this part of the show. As I mentioned, you can find out more about all our past and future events, video and podcast interviews, news articles and profiles of our winners on our website, irmagazine.com. Time for a short break now, but stay with us as coming up next, we go back to our latest ESG integration forum in London held this past November to hear some of the key highlights and hot topics discussed during the day. Stay with us and don't go away. Companies are always looking to build stronger relationships with current and potentially new investors. If you're a public company, Pulse by Public.com can help you build deeper relationships with your investors. Share your company narrative with innovative formats, make investor information more discoverable, reach retail investors where they're already engaged, and much more. Pulse by Public.com helps IR teams engage their retail shareholders, amplify company communications, and gain actionable insight into retail investor audiences. Visit public.com forward slash pulse to schedule a free demo. We are reporting live from the floor of the ESG Integration Forum Autumn in the heart of Canary Wharf in London. I'm joined by my colleagues, the head of content, Steve Waite. Hi, Steve. Hi, good to see you. Senior conference producer, Lawrence Taylor. Hi, Lawrence. Good to be here. Hi. And uh, my colleague, uh, reporter, Hema Visavadeo. Hello, hi. So it's been a very insightful day, rich of uh, insights from our delegates. We're just at the end of it. We are in front of a glass of wine. We had some nibbles and are ready to share some of the <laughs> key takeaways with, with you. Um, so to start with, um, I just wanted to start from you, Steve, and ask you, what are the main key takeaways from, from today's event for you? Absolutely. Yeah. No, talking about takeaways, I do want to take away some of the food that we've had here today as we are enjoying the, the wine and nibbles. That's that's excellent. But um, yeah, you know, um, I, I guess when I reflect on today's event, the the first kind of realization that I had or point was actually this anti-ESG thing is, is absolute nonsense because the, the room was absolutely heaving, you know, tons of people in the auditorium. Um, and I think that relates to just how much companies are required to report around ESG. And that was a huge sort of um, theme throughout the day was looking at ESG regulation requirements, particularly here in Europe, um, but touching on how they defer to other global regulations as well. We run these events every year. And one thing that's really stuck out this year compared to last year is the importance and the focus on 
supply chain investing and the ever-increasing influence of rating agencies. So if I was to pick three just off the top of my head, I would say I would say that those, those are it. Regulatory requirements, they're not going away. The influence of, of ESG rating agencies and proxy advisors and um, the importance of you know, that third party, that scope three reporting as well. Thank you, Steve. And Lawrence, if I can come to you next, what um, were the highlights for you from today? Yeah, sure. I'll probably just build on Steve's point um, about the, the kind of variety of stakeholders that people need to reach out to um, regarding ESG. That's not new necessarily. It's always been like that. But when it comes to the regulatory stakeholder, obviously CSRD has come up a lot in the discussion. Within that, you know, the conversation quickly goes to how companies are managing scope three. I would say that's probably the number one thing that's that's come up at, at this discussion, just the complexity of doing that. I actually um, led a, a roundtable on, on how companies are managing scope three, and there are some low-hanging fruits. For example, most companies, in, in terms of what they're being supplied, um, comes from about uh, 60% of what they're being supplied comes from 5% of the, their overall supply chain, for example. So with these bigger companies, they are already uh, doing scope one and scope two emissions reporting. It's easy to kind of get them in the, uh, get the data you need from them. It's the smaller companies where this is really difficult. So uh, yeah, I had a lot of uh, conversation around engaging with your supply chain, um, incentivizing them to give you the, the information you need, and often just educating them that, that this is something they need to do. And there's various different ways you can do that. One of them is around uh, just making ESG such a core part of your organization and baking it into contracts so that people, when you're onboarding new suppliers, it's, it's part of the terms and conditions. This is information we will need from you. And, and if companies aren't able to do that, at some point there's also a difficult conversation around well, what supplies do you drop? So this was all stuff that we talked about with regards to scope three. The anti-ESG point that um, Steve brought up said it's not, you know, the, the evidence that we had loads of people here, loads of people attending. I guess it depends what you call it. I think like ESG fatigue is certainly something that people are, uh, that is on people's minds and actually is contributing to the success of events like this because people want to come and understand how better to communicate and sell it to uh, to dissenting voices yeah how how you do that i guess on the anti-esg stuff we have seen companies like blackrock uh dropping is the term esg from from uh, from some of their funds we've seen companies like shell and others rolling back on net zero commitments so i do think it's real and i think how companies are kind of uh communicating the, the the kind of business value of ESG in the context of all this is really important so that's that's uh, something that, that come up, came up a lot as well. Thank you Lawrence and lastly Hema just a, a few key highlights from you on today's event. Yeah sure so the session I hosted was at the very beginning and it looked at 2024 and what are the trends and primarily we focused on simplicity thinking about ESG disclosure requirements so far there are more acronyms than anything else and one of the points that was brought up was how do we simplify these so there is a streamlined process by which you're still you know being compliant with everything but while also not being overwhelmed by the sheer volume that you've got we also spoke about whether or not having an ESG report which is 200 plus pages whether this is actually the way forward and what we can do to simplify this again and another key theme that came up was about biodiversity. That will be a huge part of 2024. And what else? AI. That was a huge, that was a dedicated panel that Steve had. That session looked at, you know, how we can use AI in the ESG front, thinking about whether or not it's ethical to use it was also one of the considerations. So, yeah, there was a lot of key themes overall during the day. Um, but from my session, it was primarily about simplifying things. So when you go into 2024, you know exactly what you're required while still dealing with all the regulation. Okay, and we, we will come back in a moment to your, your session for further details. Thank you uh, for this roundup. Um, I just wanted to look at some of the panels that you guys moderated, and I wanted to start from you, Lawrence. So you had the panel looking at rating agencies and reporting frameworks, and it was focused on understanding the Venn diagram of disclosure requirements. So I was doing some interviews, so I missed this, this, this session, and I just wanted to ask you, for our listeners who maybe are not aware of this, what is the Venn diagram to start with? Yeah, so the Venn diagram of disclosure requirements refers to the fact that companies are reporting inf inf uh, ESG information in a way that rating agencies are asking them. So 
rating agencies and all different rating agencies will have their own criteria that they want from companies. But then companies also have to report information to, well, of course, on the IR side to, to their investors, doing ad hoc investor questions and, and investor surveys to regulators. And there's some overlap there, but there's also a lot of difference. So how are companies um, kind of uh, with limited budgets and, and with time constraints, how, how are they managing that basically? And there is a sense that rating agencies, as there always has been, are a, a sort of black box. And the hope is that this push for more transparent disclosure generally will make will make that easier on companies. But yeah, I think it's fair to say that there were a few frustrations as well with companies dealing with, with rating agencies um, when it comes to sort of tick box exercises. But, you know, th- there's lots of different agencies out there. And, and um, yeah, I guess it all depends on the level of engagement they have with companies but yeah, it was really kind of just going through that process of how IR teams and governance teams with limited time can, can prioritise their, their uh, reporting and their engagement. And one of the, obviously the session was 45 minutes long and we can't uh, unpack all of it uh, in this podcast, but uh, uh, you had three brilliant speakers on your panel and one of the things was, um, one of the of the main questions it was trying to answer is how also to align ESG metrics um, with ESG disclosure requirements and also rating agencies requirements. So what were some of the main suggestions um, that came out from your panelists? I think the main thing is just transparency, is, is disclosing what you, what you are doing and, and also being open about what, what you're not doing. Um, and like I say, this, the push, the regulatory push out from the top down and the, the kind of investor push from the bottom up, I guess you could call it, um, for more transparency and more kind of standardized um, um, disclosure should get rid of some of these issues when it comes to um, you know certain companies wanting information in a certain way and and then and, and those ways not being compatible once you have a standardized language in order to just communicate your your sustainability efforts then then those sorts of problems should go away that's the hope anyway thank you brilliant recap um steve i want to come to you and talk about ai and esg it was a very um, interesting panel session looking at how companies can slowly and safely integrate AI into their ESG disclosures, or ESG strategy crafting and all of that. So again, same question. What kind of, can you just summarize your, your panel session uh, and the key takeaways from that? I can do. Before I do that, can I offer a little bit of defense for the rating agencies yeah. as well? Because, you know, IR Magazine, we like a little bit of balance and um, we're only hearing the side from the corporates as well. But I think that the rating agencies are such an important part of the ESG ecosystem. They are a, you know, a, 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 a sole sort of collection of people that have the ability to create these data for many different companies. If all investors did their own primary research, then it would be impossible um, as well. So, and, and don't think of all rating agencies as the same as well. I think that's an important takeaway for people is, you know, there are agencies out there that you can engage with uh, and you, can, you do have a lot of transparency over your reports and that kind of thing. So, yeah, that, that's something that's worth bearing in mind uh, as well. I will move on to the question. Sorry for, for, for going off the rails. Actually, just to jump on that and balance it even more, as the, um, th- there's growing pressure for third-party assurance as well. And so it doesn't matter how good your disclosure process is, ultimately, investors are going to want an ex- a-, a-, a third party, an external company, to come and validate these results. So, yeah, I think that rating agencies do have a very important role um, in the evolving ecosystem around ESG, certainly. I love this. That's such a good point. And I think it was 2028, if you're looking at the CSRD, where you need reasonable assurance so that's something that we're going to watch develop over the years how companies can get to that as well um but yeah ai so it was really interesting i was on a panel with alex salentis from finex um so he's a buy-sider we last spoke about ai as it relates to esg back in 2019 so he's been doing this for a long time but in those, I mean, a lot has happened in those four years, but really the, 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 the speed of change has picked up so much. So it was really interesting to share a panel with him four years later almost and understand that as well. Um, a few things really struck out for me as well. So first of all, in terms of companies using AI, it's been around for such a long time 
there are rating agencies, investors that need to cover hundreds and hundreds of companies that are using AI to do their legwork and have been for years. And so one of our key takeaways for the IR people in the room, for the governance professionals, people and sustainability professionals who are disclosing ESG information was to make sure that it's robot ready. So make your ESG data robot ready. I'm probably using the wrong term, but it alliterated. So, you know, if you can give me some poetic license on that. But what it really says is make sure that everything that you're putting out can be read by a machine because there will be people out there that are looking to, that, that, that are going to be using these tools that need to understand it. And you don't want a non disclosure mark next to your ESG rating or an investor to pass you by because you've disclosed something on a graphic that wasn't read by a machine, for example. One thing that was really interesting from Alex, he's obviously been using all of these tools, but he is still surprisingly cautious around them. And I think that that's really responsible. He understands the power that these tools have in terms of being able to do more quicker and potentially more accuracy but he's very aware of their faults. And so there's still an important aspect to that human element where you need that interaction as well. Thank you, Steve. That was a very interesting recap. Alec was a very great speaker. Um, we are releasing this podcast episode in December. So probably you've already seen our interview with him on our website on IRTV. But if you haven't, uh, head over to irmagazine.com and check that out because he has some great insights to share. And um, let's finish this up because we are up for time. Uh, Hema, I just want to come um, to you as you had the panel session um, looking at where ESG is headed in 2024. What did your speaker say? What to expect next year? Trends to continue? Some trends to change? What's going to happen? Yeah, so the session really took a bird's eye view on the constantly evolving world around ESG. Um, and our speakers really dived into how the current situation is really affecting it. So we talked a lot about global circumstances, looked at supply chain issues. Um, Justin, for example, one of the speakers, he really gave uh, investor perspective on what exactly this means and how ESG is going to be affected by it. Jan um, talked about some of the things that were required because of it. So looked at, you know, when you think about sustainability, what needs to be included in the reporting and what doesn't need to be. But overall, everyone seemed to have the same kind of conclusion, which is if you're going to put out a report, if you're going to put out something for sustainability-wise, make sure it's relevant. And when we talked about relevancy, we then brought up communication. And the best way to communicate with investors is just by being transparent and open about it, rather than taking this view that I'm going to add everything I possibly can into it, when in reality, you're just adding information for the sake of adding it. It doesn't do anything for anyone either side. So that was kind of an overview of what we spoke about. And again, as I said in the beginning, in 2024 trends, it's just all about simplicity. It's about how can we make this easier on people to report on things. So yeah, very brief overview, but it was very useful. And I think if we were to have this conversation in a year's time with the exact same people on the panel, you know, who knows, they could, they could think of AI as the next big trend for 2025 so yeah we'll see what happens we will wait and see yes indeed okay thank you guys for being with me on the podcast today thanks steve thank you great to be here thanks lawrence thanks a lot and Hema, thank you very much thank you Bye. we are just gonna go on a short break now and meanwhile i wish you a very merry christmas and a happy new year iron magazine's next webinar is just around the corner taking place on the 11th of January 2024. This webinar looks at how internal collaboration drives digital engagement. IR professionals and industry experts will share their experience on working together on digital engagement to meet the needs of investors and other stakeholders. You will learn how legal teams are collaborating on digital stakeholder engagement, tips for gold standard virtual and hybrid investor days, how technology can drive engagement around the AGM and effective ways to manage online Q&As and voting processes. Sign up for IR Magazine's next webinar. More information about the event is available at irmagazine.com forward slash events.
Welcome to the December edition of IR Pulse, the segment where we talk to IROs, analysts, academics and company executives about trends in the investor landscape with a focus on retail investors. This month, I'm joined by Christina Soder, Professor of Law at Southern Methodist University Dedmon School of Law in Dallas, and Sergio Alberto Gramito Ricci, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Missouri, Kansas City School of Law. Christina and Sergio, welcome to the ticker. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having us, Melanie. It's a pleasure to have you on the show this month to talk about retail shareholders uh, from engagement to education, emerging trends, and we will also touch on corporate governance. Um, you both have written and uh, co-written, I should say, extensively on the topic. To start with, maybe, Christina, if I can come to you first, um, just wanted to let you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us what you do and how long have you been doing it for? So I just joined SMU Dedman School of Law in August. Um, previously, I had been at Louisiana State University uh, Palm Bear Law Center uh, for 15 years. Uh, and I teach and write in the subjects of mergers and acquisitions and corporate governance. And I have been um, writing specifically with a focus on shareholders throughout my career. Um, and so um, it's been exciting to be able to write with Sergio on retail investors specifically. Thank you, Christina. Mergers and acquisition is something really daunting for me, just having joined the whole financial world for just a year. So maybe I should uh, tap into you as a resource going forward. Um, Happy to talk to you with, with you about it. Thank you. Um, Sergio, same to you. Can you just introduce yourself and tell our listeners what you do? Thank you, Noemi. I'm an associate professor of law at uh, the University of Missouri at Kansas City School of Law. Before joining UMKC, I was a fellow at NYU School of Law. And before I was uh, in Australia at Monash University. So I've been around the, the world a little. I am Italian and I'm a big AC Milan fan. <laughs> I see you can wear a jumper. <laughs> Our listeners can't see that, but we can't. <laughs> I'm a big um, AC Milan fan, and but I'm also a corporate governance enthusiast. Thank you. And we are going to touch, touch on all these things shortly. But Christine, I want to start from you first. So when, when we last spoke, you told me that um, it is important for investor relations, professionals, companies alike to um, figure it out who their retail investors are in the first place as a foundational fundamental thing. Um, so I just wanted to ask you, what methodology or approaches do you think are most effective in defining your uh, retail shareholder base? Basically, how can companies find out um, who their retail investors are? So Sergio and I um, actually touched on this in a book chapter that was just published. Um, the book chapter is called Harnessing the Collective Power of Retail Investors, and it was just published in a book called The Research Agenda for Corporate Law. And in there, we talk about the difficulty um, that I know your listeners are, are well aware of, of being able to identify who retail investors are. Um, and in the United States with SEC rules, essentially, uh, they require companies to speak with objecting beneficial owners through brokers and through intermediaries. And even when we're talking about shareholders who don't object, um, it's hard to, it's difficult and it's time consuming to come up with the, the list of those non-objecting beneficial shareholders. So uh, what we had identified in, in our book chapter is that at least for consumer facing companies, they can use companies like stakeholder labs and stock perks and ticker to provide perks to shareholders who are also uh, consumers. And we also advocate though, for the use of social media and for online platforms to be able to engage with retail investors and potential retail investors. Um, I know I think we're going to be talking about another paper that we wrote called the Corporate Forum, uh, where we advocate for the use of forums on companies' websites to be able to interact with retail investors. And, um, and that's a way to identify who retail investors are. Okay, thank you, Christina. And Sergio, do you want to add anything to this point about identifying retail investors? Well, I would say I will make a more general point that retail investors are people. So the, yeah. that's the first thing we need to keep in mind. 
retail investor Christina hates when I when I keep you know repeating myself, but they are mothers, daughters, sisters, uh, protesters, judges, right? They are also you know as Christina was mentioning consumers. And that's very important for uh, consumer-facing corporations. Um, they are employees, professionals, members of communities. So when we talk about their identities, uh, we don't care just about their names. We need to care about the fact that they are both uh, investors, they are shareholders, but they are also inhabitants of a shared planet, members of society. And I explore these uh, double, this complex nature of uh, retail investors Retail investors in a work in progress uh, paper titled Vitruvian Shareholder Paradigm. And that's very much the first uh, factor we need to keep in mind as we investigate retail investors and their behaviors. Yeah, and that is like super interesting. I mean, these retail investors are basically even people who have, uh, I think there is, I, I can't remember which one, but there is one of your papers or op-eds where you say the retail investors have got a superpower. Um, and it, it, their superpower is to basically change the narrative and tilt things from the comfort of their bedrooms uh, or living rooms. So uh, on that matter, I just wanted to speak about um, a, a, an op-ed that you co-wrote about the movie Dumb Money, which was released this year, um, that tells the story of how ordinary individuals tilted Wall Street's narrative from, from the comfort of their houses and got rich by turning GameStop into the world's most talked company for a while in the context of this you discussed the power of like proxy voting and touch on the need to educate retail investors on voting so can you expand on the education point how it influences market dynamics and the perceived power of retail votes christina if you want to start um there is a public.com survey that recently came out of, of retail investors yeah. and they talked there about why they're not exercising their proxy votes and a majority and think it was about 54 percent said that they don't participate in proxy voting because they weren't aware that they were actually even able to do so and almost 35 percent or so said that they don't understand the subject matter and what we really believe that this boils down to and revolves around education, that many investors just don't understand that there's typically one vote per share. Um, they don't understand that proxy voting is different than voting in political elections, just the procedure is different. They don't understand the terminology. Um, they don't understand what a record date is. And when they're getting an email saying, now it's time to vote, we're getting materials in the mail, the disclosure's overwhelming and they just aren't, they aren't reading it. So in that same survey, about 28% said they don't vote because they don't even believe that their vote matters. And so it's oh. just clear for many people just not to vote, particularly when they don't know about their power. They don't know about their quote unquote superpower as we call it. So again, this really boils down to a matter of education. Sergio, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I would say that failing to vote is a, is a consequential uh, missed opportunity for retail investors. We all know that business corporations rival national states in power and influence, and failing to vote means failing to keep the corporate sector accountable to humankind. Mm. Christina and I discussed that in, uh, in our article, Wireless Investors and Apathy Obsolescence. And we point out how in the era of online communication, social media, and easier access to information, apathy is no longer the most rational behavior for, for retail investors. So retail investors need to be educated about their power, and the, and, but also educated about how, how failing to vote it really, really is a missed opportunity for that. I, I mean... In other literature and other papers that you wrote, you also suggest, I mean, you advocate for mandatory education, perhaps at a high school level to improve this financial literacy. So if you were to look at the benefits, uh, you know, if this was to be established, if, if this was going to happen, then what are the benefits of mandatory education, in your opinion, Christina? So mandatory education, corporate governance education, would really help to um, have individuals learn about the stock, about voting rights that they have, about the power that they have, 
about the voting, the proxy voting mechanism, about boards of directors, about the role of executive officers, uh, about investing and about interacting with companies, it would help them to learn how and where to obtain information on corporations, legitimate information on corporations, and be able to help them at least begin to decipher misinformation that they may run into online, because we know that there is a lot of misinformation um, about corporations online. Do you, a question for you both, do you see this happening, uh, mandatory education in the short, in the long term, do you see this becoming a real thing? So in, in the U.S., we are seeing a push in public high schools towards mandatory fi financial literacy education, mm -hmm. uh, but that typically does not include corporate governance education. And so what we're, we're all in favor of financial literacy education, but we think that there should be corporate governance liter literacy education as well, at least at the high school level, um, but, but even, it'd be even better if it were earlier as well. I would add that corporate governance education is almost a democratic matter. First of all, because people have the power to influence corporate behaviors if they actually vote, right? And second, because there is no real financial literacy without corporate governance education, because we, if we decouple um, financial uh, interest from uh, governance power, we basically fail to show the relevance of engagement, right? So we can only push for the everyday person engagement in the corporate sector, in the corporate world, if the everyday person sees the opportunity and the, and the everyday person sees the opportunity only if the, the everyday person understands that uh, they have real power over the corporate sector through voting. So it's, they, don't, they don't just provide money to corporations. When they, they own shares in companies, they have a financial interest coupled with governance rights. And it's through governance rights that we, really, we can really change social norms and shift social norms towards engagement. Thank you for explaining that to our listeners. I, I think many people would agree with that. And I, probably we could have like an entire podcast series on this, I think. Um, I would just like to uh, move the conversation forward just to touch on other things that I think are uh, equally relevant. And I just, I, I know we're a bit pressed for time, but I just wanted to touch on those and talk a little bit about corporate forums um, um, as a means to enhance information flow and engagement between these retail individual investors and companies. Um, again, on this, you co-wrote a paper called The Corporate Forum. Can you expand on, on that and share with our listeners why you think corporate forums are important and in the context of investor relations, how IR professionals should be using them? Well, corporate fora are, are important because they are a way to uh, establish and nurture engagement with retail investors and really with all investors. Uh, all investors who do not have access to corporate leadership through side engagement, I would say, they are a way to fact check information that retail investors gather online as they do. They are also an opportunity to foster loyalty, both by retaining current shareholders and by attracting new shareholders. For consumer-facing uh, corporations, the corporate forum is also an opportunity to um, retain and attract consumers. So there is a clear advantage in um, communicating on a on a regular and uh, transparent basis with the uh, with the uh, the market in general. So with people, this has a clear positive impact on overall reputation of the company. And as we are entering in an era in which uh, non-financial disclosure uh, is gaining uh, an increasingly relevant role uh, in informing investing decisions. Yeah. Reputation is becoming a critical asset and corporate fora can be the, the place where corporations establish their reputation. Makes sense. And um, Christina, do you want to add anything to, to this, to what Sergio just said? Well, I think it's important to keep in mind that we already are seeing and have seen, we saw it with GameStop, people coming together in forums and discussing yeah. in forums. 
And also there is an SEC rule already in place um, that permits corporate forums and encourages the use of corporate forums. So that framework is there. Um, I think now is really the time is ripe to to utilize that framework because of the development of technology and because these new retail investors are so digitally savvy and they are gathering online, they're used to gathering online and they um, enjoy obtaining information online and they want to have interaction um, with management and they want to have a really an authentic experience and um, they want to develop those relationships um, directly with with management so i think it's now's the time is ripe to to utilize a corporate forum yeah i think from what we we see i mean i see in my day-to-day reporting the retail investors as opposed to institutional investors and companies and management are a bit quicker at you know adopting the uh, technological development and now artificial intelligence um you mentioned the SEC, you mentioned a rule in place. I just wanted to talk to cast an eye into next year and talk about um, one upcoming, well, proposed, sorry, um, SEC rule on market accessibility for retail investors. Um, I think uh, I'm, gonna get, I'm just going to try and remember the name of it. Uh, conflict of interest associated with the use of predictive data analytics by broker dealers and investment affairs. Yes, that's correct. Yes, I I just wanted to talk about this with you because I know you have written to the SEC. Um, So to start with, let's talk about what this very, very briefly, what it is about and how it could impact uh, market accessibility for retail investors. So in its current form, in the proposed form, rule is is very broad and This is what we included in our comment letter to the SEC. It has very broad definitions of technology, which is covered by the rule. It has broad definitions of interaction, investor interaction. It has broad definitions of of conflicts of interest. So essentially what the proposed rule requires or calls for is an elimination of investor interaction with broker dealers where there would be a conflict of interest. And so typically what we see uh, from the SEC is a disclosure. Here though, this is basically saying eliminate or or essentially minimize. Um, And our criticism of the rule is that in, in its current form, the definitions are so broad and it could be interpreted to eliminate the ability of retail investors to be able to use investing apps. It could eliminate online platforms meant to provide investors with education, meant to provide them with information, and and meant to provide them with access to issuers' management and, and interaction. So just at the time, we're seeing technology really open the door to allow everyday people like you and I to be investing directly in companies and to interact with management. There is a potential that it could be shut down um, or developers may not want to further develop apps and platforms because of these hurdles being put up by the SEC. Uh, I think the Sergio can talk a little bit more about the AI perspective. We're not saying that AI should not be regulated. Our issue is more with the broad or potentially broad application of the proposed rule. Okay. Um, Sergio, your thoughts? Yeah, I would just say that the, one, of the, one of the issue is that is unclear what types of technology would be regulated by these uh, by these rule. It seems to be overreaching with respect to the scope of technologies that uh, qualify. And uh, the real issue we have with that is that uh, if this regulation makes access to um, securities market too expensive for the everyday okay. person, then the everyday person would uh, shy away, right? So it is true there are aspects of um, investing that uh, need to be regulated to protect investors. But when regulation is so burdensome that current players would leave the market, current players meaning providers of services, would leave the market because it is no longer cost effective, then the downstream effect is that the average person would find it too costly to um, access the equities market. 
So, you know, commission-free, mobile-first investing apps have really taken down many barriers to market accessibility. They can be regulated, but in regulating them, we need to be very careful that we do not take away access, access to securities market from people. Thank you both for sharing your views on this. And um, we shall wait and see, like many things <laughs> with the SEC. And uh, I mean, for our listeners, if you've got a strong opinion on this, please let us know. Write a comment down below, or reach out by social media. We would love to know what you think. Finally, then, um, just wanted to ask you to crystal ball gaze a little bit and just tell me, looking ahead to 2024, considering what we just talked about, emerging platforms, uh, potential regulatory changes on the horizon. How do you envision the landscape for retail investors to shape up, up or what are your hopes, um, Christina? So um, I would hope that retail investors become more engaged, that they really begin to exercise their rights to vote. I have optimism with respect to that. There is research showing that there's a positive correlation between political election um, voting turnout and corporate voting turnout. And there's predictions that Gen Z is going to become very big in, in political voting in the future in the United States. And so I'm hoping that in, in 2024, we see the same thing begin to unfold with, with corporate voting. Um, and I'm hoping that we continue to see startups and the development and further development of social media apps relating to retail investors and the development of more education for retail investors. Thank you. And Sergio, what about yourself? What are your hopes for next year? <laughs> well, my prediction <laughs> or predictions yep. in 2024, the common understanding of retail investing will shift from a saving technology to a 360-degree experience that encompasses social and economic engagement as much as financial planning. Okay, interesting. Thank you both for joining us on the show this month. I actually wish you wish to welcome you back on the show eventually. <laughs> Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having us, and I would love being back. I echo, Thank I echo Sergio. Thank you for having us and, and happy 2024. Thank you. Merry Christmas as well. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Ticker Podcast, brought to you by IR Magazine in partnership with our sponsor, PulseByPublic.com. Huge thanks for their support. You can learn more about Pulse at public.com forward slash Pulse. Thanks also to everyone who took the time of being with us today. For our listeners, if you enjoyed the show, make sure you like and subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Until next time, thanks for listening.